Amen. Welcome, you guys. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for doing that, you guys, over at the Homer campus. Love that. Fantastic Easter here. Uh, if you didn't hear, 15 services, 17,720 people all came. Let's just give it up to you because you invited them all. More importantly, I think to me, was uh, we asked people to make a, a jump of faith. We didn't necessarily specifically say what that was going to be, but we just asked for hands and we asked people to fill out cards and had 957 people say they jumped in a step of faith over the Easter weekend. And some of those were you, okay? Every one of them was prayed over by our staff this past week. And uh, not only that, but we baptized 278 people in the last three weeks. Let's just keep clapping because that's what we're all about. We are um, we're ready for you to join us, both campuses, if you'd like to. I appreciate your prayers for me. I've never preached five sermons in a row on Saturday or 11 times like we did over Easter. And uh, by Sunday, I started feeling, you know, pretty comfortable with the timing of everything, you know. So Sunday morning, I left, you know, at the last minute. Um, and uh, I was on my way to the 830 service at about 840. And... Uh, I was coming up Wolf Road, and all of a sudden, the blue lights went on behind me. I'm not making this up. I got pulled over. I got uh, pulled over just before 187th, uh, so I pulled over out of the way of anybody else that was on their way late to church, um, so they wouldn't be able to see me. And um, this is a true story. The officers said I wasn't speeding. They said that I had pulled out on the Wolf Road in the way of another car that had to slow down when I pulled out, which was, again, probably somebody late going to church that I pulled out in front of. And, and honestly, you know, they got cut off by their pastor. So if that was you, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't think I ever even saw another car, to be honest. I was driving under the influence of Easter by that time, okay? So, so check this. The officer said, um, well, are you in a hurry? And I said... Well, yeah, there are 2,000 people up the road expecting to hear me preach an Easter sermon in about 10 minutes. Bet you never heard that one before. <laughs> she was very nice and let me go without a ticket, let me get on my way in a hurry. And uh, again, I apologize if I cut you off. I hope you didn't flip me off. That would have been awkward when you figured out who I was. I told that story only at one of the Easter services, the 8.30 Easter service. And uh, one of my friends emailed me later on that she had taken her, her kids to Mariano's, you know, to do a little Easter grocery store shopping before, you know, the big Easter party that they were going to. And uh, while they were going through the checkout line, the checkout lady turned to her kids and said, so have you guys have, have you been having a good Easter? And she said, without, you know, anybody else saying anything, my little five-year-old said, Pastor Tim got pulled over on the way to church. <laughs> I guess I was the talk of the whole store. So, uh, you know, so much to celebrate for Easter, you know, my driving was the big hit. PT got pulled over today. We're doing Daring Faith. If uh, you haven't paid much attention to what we're doing, Pastor Todd killed it last weekend. Didn't he do a great job? Really, really great to have him on the team. Abraham is going up one. If you didn't see it, go back and watch it online. Abraham's going up one side of the mountain while the ram is going up the other side, while the sacrifice was going up the other side. And I love that perspective because while Abraham thought he was going to have to do something difficult, God was already providing. And he said, sometimes we're living in verse 8 because we haven't seen verse 13 yet. And he said it this way. He said, only God can see both sides of the mountain. I just thought that was a perfect way for us to jump into this. Daring faith is about following obedience even before the provision has been seen. You may not see the sacrifice yet. You may not see the ram yet. 
We're doing some projects around here as a church um, over the next couple of years that only we can do if we have a daring step of faith as a church. Got the information on your way in or you got it last week. If you want to, you can pull out the book and you can turn over to page 24 and jot down some notes today because uh, this is the small group stuff in here and also some places for you to write down some notes and I'd love for you to take it. And uh, I want to tell you right up front that only God can see both sides of the mountain, okay? The deal with us is that we are uh, this month celebrating 65 years as a church. And uh, it's our 65th anniversary, and it just kind of hit us. I mean, you know, it's like no big deal, 65, whatever, except from the, from, the, from the standpoint of 65 is when most people retire. And um, so we have, a, we have something in front of us, a decision to make. Are we going to, as a church, retire at 65, just kind of be cool with where we are, or are we going to keep pressing on to what a daring faith would call us with our mighty God. And as my obvious police record would point out to you, I'm in the Sammy Hagar category. I can't drive 65. It was 55, but you know what I'm saying? We're not going to slow down, okay? I'm not going to retire. The church is not going to retire because God didn't retire. Jesus hasn't retired. No one in the Bible retired, and time is short. I had this discussion this week with somebody who asked me, is the church getting too big? And I said, hell? No. Because of hell, no, the church is not getting too big. I'm not going to sit around on the veranda in heaven drinking silver oak all day, thinking about all the people who could have joined me if we just would have had more room, if we just would have tried a a little bit harder. Remember, we're trying to get the hell out of the people, the lives of the people that we know, both when it's here on this earth and for eternity, and that means living in faith. Our 2020 vision has not changed. If you've been around here for a while, we've had it for a long time. We hope to be on five campuses running 20,000 people a weekend, planting churches internationally and nationally all over, bringing heaven to earth and taking earth to heaven. It's tattooed on my arm. I can't change my mind, okay? It's a tattoo right here. And I use this a lot, but this is kind of our mantra. Some want to live within the sound of the chapel bell, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. C.T. Studd said that, and that's one of our mantras around here. I know some of you are hanging on, you're, you're like, oh, maybe someday P.T. will lighten up and let us live within the sound of the chapel bell, you know? Maybe that'll happen. Can we please get a bell? No, it's never going to happen. Here's your bell. No. Meet me in the chapel after the service and I'll ring your bell. We're not going to live in the sound of a chapel bell. I can't drive 65. Now, sure, we could live in the past. We could dwell on the past. I love this great commercial from football season. Hey, what's up, Troy? Okay, that it? That'll do it. Excuse me. Hey, man. Huge fan, man. Oh, thank you. All the touchdowns and the wins and... Yeah, you know, I I don't like to dwell on the past, but thank you. Yeah. Aikman, touchdown, unbelievable. Aikman, touchdown, unbelievable. Aikman, touchdown, unbelievable. I dwell on the past. I would, too. I don't blame you. Okay. (laughs) I <laughs> love that. Listen, we could, we, we could be Troy Aikman, you know, we could dwell in the past. I could be proud of being the 59th largest church in America, having 17,700 people for Easter, baptizing 7,414 people during my ministry here. I could be proud of that. I could sit around, have that on my ringtone and be really happy about it, except for this one little minor detail. Jesus told the people 2,000 years ago, I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. 
And you know that I believe that if Jesus said that 2,000 years ago, he would be less patient with us now. If you look around, the harvest is all around us, and it's got to be that we continue to do something. 80% of the churches in America are plateaued or declining. 3,200 churches in the U.S. die every year. Nine a day. Closing while the population is exploding. How's that happening? Well, we're, we're, we're not having daring faith. Everything I'm going to tell you for the next four weeks comes from a deep theological conviction inside of me, and it is my theological conviction that the Bible tells me that someday, soon, this world is going to end, and a new one will begin, and only those people who have Jesus are going to be glad about it. And you could tell me that I'm stupid, but I've studied it. I have a doctorate in it, okay? I didn't just make this up. And in spite of anything you may have heard or read, I firmly believe that we are all sinners and we don't deserve to spend eternity with a holy God, period. So we all need Jesus to die for our sins, to pay the price, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But that also means that those who don't will perish. The Bible tells me everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, okay? People say the Bible's exclusive. No, it's not. Everyone, everyone calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how can they call on the name of the Lord, uh, the name of the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? I didn't make that up. It's not, it's, it's not my theology. It's my firmly held conviction that I'm supposed to bring heaven to earth and help bring uh, as much peace and kingdom to this earth as I can right now and to take as many people with me to heaven someday when I go there. This is the theme picture we used for the last generosity initiative we did in 2011. Um, and it's just stark to me. My, my, my daughter's in this service, um, a couple of them. Well, all three of them, actually. Have, have been to Africa with us. Put the picture back up. Where'd it go? Get it back up there. That's my theme picture. That's a, a picture of the kids that are behind the gate, behind the gate at the school that we helped plant and we helped initiate in Kenya. Okay? Those are the ones that want to get in and, and there's no room for them. And I want to tear that gate down. And bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, and I need your help. Because that picture of the kids outside that gate is also a picture of the people in our area who want to get in right here in the south suburbs. I hear this every week. Somebody says, yeah, I had a friend come, and they couldn't find a parking place. Or they, you know, they, they, they couldn't get in, so, that, so they left. So we're launching a new initiative, Raise Our Generosity, over the next two years. To raise our giving from where it would have been if we hadn't have done this, which would have been 20 to 22 million, we have about a $10 million budget a year, that probably would have come in unless something would have happened without us doing anything. That's what would have gone on along the way. And we're going to raise our generosity, and we've got a goal over the next two years to raise that to 35 million, which is around 50% more than would have come in if I hadn't stood up here and challenged you. Okay, PT, so do you want us to give 50% more? Maybe, I don't know. The Harlows are going to do way more than that. We're going to do more than we've ever given before. But what I really want for you and for everyone in your family is to be generous on behalf of your brothers and sisters who aren't in yet. Everyone. And I want everybody in, not just the regular givers, okay? I want everybody in. What I want for you is for you to ask what God, ask God what he wants for you to do. And I know that some of you saw this video last week, but I know a bunch of you didn't, so I want to play it again because they did a great job with it. This is what I mean. 
I love that. That's so great. I love serving here. Listen, primary goal of Daring Faith is for everybody to be in, 100% participation with our generosity, with our giving over the next couple of years. This is the largest thing we've ever done as a church. It's the largest step of faith that many of us will have ever taken in our faith journey. I really want to encourage you to be here all of the next few weeks. Pick a service, any service, it doesn't matter, and, and be here and be a part of this. I want to encourage you to be in the small groups and, and be ready to rock and roll with this because uh, when we get to the beginning of May and as we start to celebrate into Mother's Day, um, I think God's going to do amazing things. Let me take it up. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is a very obscure passage of Scripture. Uh, 1 Samuel 14, if you got your iPhones or your Bibles, you could turn over there if you want. 1 Samuel 14, Saul is uh, on the outskirts of this area called Gibeah, and um, he's, sitting under, uh, uh, he's sitting under a pomegranate tree, okay, because he is distraught that he can't win a battle. It's really, really important. It's Israelites versus Philistines, okay? Always bad blood between them. If you remember stories of Goliath or Samson, any of those stories, it's always about the people of God versus the nasty enemies, the Philistines. And they were always in battles with one another, all right? Again, Saul is staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. I just love the pomegranate thing. He's just sitting under a tree because he doesn't know what to do. Listen to this. The Philistines had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and Saul Soldiers as numerous as the sands of the seashore. Chapter 13 tells us also that Saul had 600 men with him. All right, Saul's got 600 men. He's given up. He's sitting down under the pomegranate tree because they have what? They have 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, tears, and soldiers more numerous than the, than the seashore. In other words, the odds are against them. It's like the classic line from the Moneyball movie. Remember that Moneyball movie about, about the Oakland A's uh, baseball team? And Brad Pitt's character says, as he's trying to describe it, he says, listen, there are rich teams, there are poor teams, there's 50 feet of caca, and then there's us. I love that. That's where the Israelites were, okay? King had given up, sitting down under a pomegranate tree, waiting to die. He feels a little bit like, I don't know, I just got to throw this in because it's so funny because I'm a golfer. Did you see Ernie L's seven putt, the first green? Let me show you this video at the Masters. It's hard to watch, boys and girls. Of swinging, this is, this is an excruciating thing to have to watch. That's a, an, a putt from Ernie L's on the first hole. And by the time Ernie is done, he's six putted from less than two feet. Unfortunately, that's happened. To it gathers himself, and I can't even imagine how the, the wheels are spinning in your brain. This is the first hole, and he's not even touching the hole. And then here, hey, seven putts. Does that make all the golfers feel amazing right now? The very first hole, he's seven putted. He got a sextuple bogey on the first hole of the Masters. That, that's what Saul feels like, all right? Because the odds are against him. There must be something over that hole. There's no way that ball's going in. The raiding party of the Philistines are out to destroy and annihilate the Israelites wherever they go, and they've got all the numbers. So there's 600 warriors remaining with Saul and his son, Jonathan, okay? And, and they're, they're very, they basically can't put up any opposition to the Philistines. What gets worse is it tells us that there are no blacksmiths among them, so they don't have any swords, it says there's, there's not, there's not a soldier with Saul.
Saul, Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Okay, so they got 600 guys and two swords. They seriously had like rakes and pitchforks and some hoes in there. You're like, what are they going to do? Okay, they're good as dead. The odds couldn't be any more stacked against them. Except for one thing. God, right? It feels to me like Abraham last week when Todd talked about it, you know, from their perspective, they could only see one side of the mountain. It sounds to me like a church in the south suburbs of Chicago where most people don't go to church and most people don't really care and there's so many obstacles because people are broke and land and buildings are expensive and Malawi and Kenya and the Dominican Republic are a long way away and that church we're going to build with your money in the Dominican Republic is full of people who grow tobacco, the devil's weed. You know, I mean, this is the kind of opposition that we have going on. In other words, we don't have the numbers, we don't have the weapons, so the only logical solution for the Israelites was to stay out of the way, make sure that they just didn't get found. They were just hiding out. Okay, And here's something for you to write down. This is where God's children were, and for good reason. Okay, Their faith was less than their fear. Their fear was greater than their faith. It, it was for the Israelites, okay, God, I believe that you're there, and I believe that you're good, and I believe that you're strong, but come on, there's just too many of them. Or if you've been hearing me talk about Martha and her dead brother Lazarus lately, it's Jesus I believe that you will raise him someday, and I know that you could have saved my brother if you'd gotten here before he died, and maybe if you'd have gotten here just after he'd been dead for a day or two, it would have been okay, but he's been dead for four days. It's too late. Their faith was less than their fear. So the children of God are basically hiding out. The Israelites are literally like, if you read the passage, I'm thinking of whack-a-mole, okay? They're like hiding in these little caves, and the Philistines are waiting for them to come out, and they're just whacking them whenever they come out. That's all they can do. They are done. They are at the end. And there's this road, this, this pass at Michmash, what we're talking about. And we know from the story that there's a detachment of 20 soldiers at this road, at this pass. And verse 4 and 5 describe the strategic advantage to this pass. On each side of the pass was a cliff. So it was pretty easy to defend. There's a scene in The Walking Dead where all the zombies are coming and they're right on the edge of a cliff and they just can shove them off the cliff, right? That's, what, that's why they only needed 20 people there, okay? It looks like this. It, this is the side of the road. There's one road going through there. These are the literal caves, the literal, literal cliffs of Micmash right there, okay? So King Saul, he's done. He's sitting under his pomegranate tree giving up. Unbeknownst to him, his son Jonathan has decided to have a little bit of daring faith. And he wants to figure out a solution because he wasn't a pomegranate tree sitting kind of guy. Jonathan can't drive 65. So Jonathan goes to the pass at Michmash, and he's literally on his hands and knees. I'm summarizing the story for you. This mission is basically humanly, logically impossible. And he's scaling up this pass, which is a suicide mission already, because if the enemies would have seen him, all they would have to do is just throw a rock down at him. There's no way to get up there, right? Plus, there's 20 of them up there, okay? So, so here we go. We got, we got two, 20. 20 is greater than two, so fear should be greater than faith, right? That, that's the way that it should work. But verse 6 reveals what Jonathan was made of. Listen to this. He told his 
armor bearer, his assistant, hey, come on, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. I mean, hey, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In other words, what if we reverse this fear greater than faith? Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. I and mean, we know that nothing can hinder, right? We know this. You know, we know that everything God does, that everything is going to work out. We know that he can do exceedingly abundantly all we can ask or imagine. Nothing can hinder him, whereby many or by few. So maybe we can switch this around and go faith is greater than fear. Do you see what happens here? Maybe we can do this. Why? One guy stands up and says, perhaps. Perhaps. I may be wrong. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. I have no doubt that God can do whatever he wants, and I believe that God is greater. And perhaps this is one of those moments where I'm supposed to jump out of the plane because I know that God's on my back with a parachute and everything's going to be okay. Now listen to Jonathan's assistant in verse 7. This is the part you need to play. I'm going to be Jonathan, okay? I'm saying perhaps. This is the part I need that you take part in. His, his armor bearer said, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan comes up with a plan. He says, look, I'm not stupid, but I have faith in God, and perhaps he wants us to try something crazy. So let's ask him for a sign. <laughs> Come up with this little sign, okay? I mean, sometimes you need to do this, it's okay. Yeah, let's ask for a sign. If we pop off on our little ledge here and we show ourselves to the Philistines and they say, hey, we're going to come over and get you, then that'll be our sign to run away because it's not our day. You know, not that we don't believe God can do the right thing, but it might not be the right timing, so we'll just run away and go away. But if the Philistines say, hey, come on up here, then that means that God wants us to go which is interesting to me because isn't that the opposite thing I would do with God? I mean, it's like what they're saying is if, if, if the Philistines say, why don't you come up here? I would be like, if the Philistines start coming after us, that's our sign, you know, because at least we could shove them off the cliff like the zombies. You know, at least we got some advantage. There's no strategic advantage to running up to them. That's going to take even more daring faith, right? So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost, and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. That was a sign, right? Sounds a little bit more like, here's your sign to me, but that was their sign, okay? I, I mean, so, so they did. They said, climb on up, right? And it, and it says, climb on up after me, Jonathan tells his armor bearer. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. You asked for a sign. He gave you the answer to the sign. Now it's time to go. I would have asked for a harder sign than that, don't you think? You know, Lord, make the Cubs win the World Series, and then, you know, uh, whatever, do something, right? Not, hey, come here so I can kill you. Watch what happens. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet, meaning this is already not very easy because they're not even up the cliff yet, right? Even before they get to the 20 bad guys that all have weapons, and they've only got one between the two of them with his armor bearer right behind him. And if I can abbreviate the Hebrew, you won't be able to understand it. At this moment, it says, and they opened up a can on the Philistines. 
The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. And in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men. Two guys, one sword against 20. I have this matrix picture in my mind, don't you? You know, you're like, it's just an awesome story. God does these miracles and they won the battle. But that's not really the good part. That's not really the good part. That's awesome. That's, That's 20. But watch what happens after that. Then panic struck the whole Philistine army and the ground shook. I love this. It was a panic sent by God. Because God can do whatever he wants, right? He sent a panic into the enemy camp. Saul's lookouts, (laughs) Saul's lookouts saw the army melting away in all the directions. And Saul said to his men, oh, look, we're winning. Come on, you guys, muster all the forces and let's see who's left. I mean, he's a typical leader, right? I'm giving up. The odds are too great. Oh, wait a minute. We're starting to win. Let's go. Yeah, I forgot about God. Here we go, right? Listen, I can't stand it that nine churches are closing every day while the population of the world continues to go up, okay? I can't stand it that 80%, four out of five churches are literally doing nothing to reach God's lost children out there in the world. They're sitting under a pomegranate tree giving up. I can't stand it. But hey, if you want to sit under a pomegranate tree, if you want to retire, that's fine. That's great. Just don't do it here, okay? They're dragging us down. I heard the story of a church caught fire one night. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were standing around watching it. And, of course, the pastor showed up to see what was going on. The fire department couldn't get control of it. pastor seized upon the opportunity, noticed a guy from his church that he hadn't seen at church for a long time. And so he kind of sauntered over to him and said, well, brother, this is the first time I've seen you in church in a really long time. Man looked at the preacher and said, preacher, this is the first time this church has been on fire in a really long time. (laughs) Fair enough. Maybe if somebody steps out in daring faith and does something, everybody else will follow along. And Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle, and they found the Philistines in total confusion striking each other with their swords. God really literally made the enemies just kill each other. Why would you worry that God couldn't take care of the problem? Provide the ram, provide the resources. When the Israelites, who had hidden in the hill country, heard that the Philistines were on the run, they all joined the battle in hot pursuit, and the Lord rescued Israel that day. The Lord. Not Jonathan, not the armor bearer, certainly not Saul. It was the Lord. Of course it will take faith. It always takes faith. But, but you need to write this one down. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. The truth is most of us will, play, will face many more perhapses in our life than we ever will certainties in our walk with God. There will be times when we will have a sense of what's right and what God's will is, but there will still be doubts and uncertainties. And when it comes to you and your involvement in daring faith, that's going to be exactly the same. When do you ever have a sure thing? When do you ever get anything but a perhaps? That's the way it is. But perhaps if your faith is greater than your fear, then God will allow us, allow you, allow me, allow part few to win the battle, and maybe everybody else will jump in along the way. Here's what I found fascinating about this. What I love so much about the story. Three characters, okay? King Saul. What is King Saul known for? Fear. Sitting under a pomegranate tree. You got Jonathan. 
All right, he's a guy that steps out and says, okay, perhaps. That's what he's known for, fear and perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will act. Nothing can hinder the Lord, right? And the armor bearer, who is a person of faith that says, go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. I'm not going to drive 65. I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to sit and be Saul, sit around on my pomegranates. That sounded worse than it should have. I'm going to be Jonathan, okay? Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from winning. Nothing can. And listen, i got to tell you right now, the church, the leadership of this church has made a Jonathan decision. If we didn't have faith in God and in you, we would have waited until all the commitments came in to break ground on the property in New Lenox. That's a big part of the Daring Faith Initiative is going to be about a new campus that we are building in New Lenox. Here's a picture of the layout of the campus in New Lenox that we want to get going by December of 2016, of this year, by Christmas. And here is a picture of Richie being allowed to dig the dirt and break ground. And that should be very, very scary to you. And here is the campus staff team that we've already assembled, put together, that's getting ready to go out there and be ready for a new campus in New Lenox to reach more people. Now listen, we... We, uh, we're excited. We, we can't afford to miss a Christmas grand opening. If you miss the Christmas grand opening, then you might as well wait till Easter. And if you open at Easter, that's bad because then you have the summer slump coming right away. So we've decided to make a daring faith decision and break ground already. The precast walls are already being manufactured in Iowa. The leadership of this church has made a Jonathan decision to go ahead and get started even before the commitments came in. We also made a Jonathan decision back in October to spend $4 million that we had set aside for the New Lenox campus on the Homer campus that we knew God was giving us in the timing that we just had to jump on it. And we know that's been proven to be true. They had 1,400 people at the Homer campus. You had 1,400 at Easter, and we're proud of you, okay? But listen, honestly... We're in a position where if you aren't the armor bearers and you don't say, I'm with you heart and soul, we're not going to win this battle. So what I say to you is climb up after me. Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Climb up after me. That, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying to you, okay? You've got commitment cards in here. We're not doing this yet, but I want to draw your attention to them because we're asking you to jump in. Okay, uh, you've got your booklets with you too, and they're, they're in there as well, but I just want to point to them along the way. Either way, you understand, you need to understand that I'm asking you to commit over the next two years to what you're going to give. My wife and I have done that. It may be a scary number for you. It's a scary number for us. It's more than we've already done, ever done before. You need to understand that when you write this number down, it's your total, it's going to be your total commitment, and we're not doing this as a church for three more weeks, Okay. But, but it's a total number of what you would give, because everything we do here is about our mission. So it's a total number. If, if you would have given $1,000 a year over the next two years, then at least write the 2000 number down, because that's a place to start. And then at some point, I want you to pray about what God wants you to have a little bit of daring faith about over the next two years and what he might provide, what ram he might make available for you and have some faith. And it may be, I hope it is, the largest commitment that you've ever made in your life. We commit to the mortgage on our house. We commit to our kids' tuition. We commit to our cell phone contract. Daring faith is committing our generosity to God. And for those of you that are make, ready to make that a reality, we have a big event Friday night. We've rented out the Chicagoland Motor Speedway. 
And uh, we're going to have in the infield, we've got a big tent, and we're going to have a big gathering, have an advanced commitment night. And it's not just a party. It's a, it's a time for us to celebrate the people that are already ready to jump because we're going to bring you back the number of those families and what they've done to encourage you over the next four, or four weeks as we make this financial commitment of bringing heaven to earth and earth to heaven. Okay? Our worship band will be there. I'm going to be speaking. We've got activities for the kids from age five and up. Uh, to fifth grade. We've got all kinds of stuff that's going to be going on out there. And plus, how many times are you going to get to be in the infield at Chicagoland Motor Speedway? Uh, we already have 540 people signed up. We can only take 1,000. Uh, so uh, I want to encourage you, if you want to sign up and do that, you can uh, talk to somebody on the way out, get on our website, shoot us an email, let us know, because we want to get you signed up. Okay? If you are, you're here, you need to understand this. You're here, I mentioned this in the video, you're here because 65 years ago, three women who rode the train back and forth from uh, Chicago to Joliet started thinking about and dreaming about what it would be like to plant the church here in the Tinley Park area. That's, that's why you're here. 65 years ago, that's how it got started, 1951. You're also here because 19 years ago, a church that was running 300 people set out to raise a million dollars to buy land and to relocate. How many of you in this room, raise your hand, were here in 1997. Raise your hand up. Both campuses, I just want to see your hands, okay? Still a few of us, there's a few of us around. 19 years ago, 19 years ago, Homer, I know you got, I know you got some, okay? We made a video in 1997, and, and I told this story. It was a true story. It was about uh, an emergency room technician in San Jose, California, who was on his way home from work, and he had his emergency band radio on, and he got a call that there was a child choking over uh, in, in a subdivision in a, in a little area right off where he knew he was driving. He knew that he could possibly be the first person to get to that child that was choking if he got off at the next exit and just went to, to this area. He knew where it was. So we got off of the exit. Unfortunately, there were people there doing road construction, and they had some things blocked off. So he, he, he rolled down his window, and he yelled over to somebody. He said, hey, I got an emergency. I'm trying to go save this kid. Can you help me? And, and a guy jumped on it on his caterpillar, and he moved some stuff out of the way really fast so this guy could drive through. And the guy drove through on the, you know, on the dirt, on the, on the stuff that this guy had been working on all day. He drove in. He went to this house. He found this baby that was choking on a button. So there was a little bit of air getting through, but, but it wasn't going to make it much longer. And he, you know, turned the baby over his knee, popped the baby in the back, the button came out, and the baby was saved. A true story. Next day, he's driving down the interstate, and he gets to that exit, and he thinks, oh, wait a minute, I've got to stop and see if that guy's here and tell him what happened. And he pulls his car over, and as he's pulling his car over, the guy on the Caterpillar just jumps off and starts running over to him. And before the emergency room guy could say anything, that guy said, you know that, that baby you saved yesterday? It was mine. And I told that story <laughs> 19 years ago. And I had no idea. Because the truth is, it was. It was mine. It was my kid, all three of them. Those are the ones we saved because we did a daring step of faith in 1997. All three of them got baptized here. All three of them, three of them grew up in their faith here. Two of them have gotten married here, and the other one's going to get married in a couple of months. It, it was literally mine. The sacrifice I was making at that moment was literally mine. 
My family's all here this weekend. It doesn't happen very often. We got a little wedding shower thing going on. And honestly, the weird part for me is that as I'm thinking about doing my fifth capital campaign, I'm realizing that this time, unfortunately, it's not going to be mine. It's not going to be my kids or probably even my grandkids. They all, you know, decided they didn't like me anymore and moved away. <laughs> far, far away. California and to Nashville. And, and, and so, I mean, other than them showing up every once in a while and visiting, this is not something I'm doing for me this time. And that kind of makes it easier for me to challenge you to jump in with us. Because the kids that we're going to save, they are yours. They are your grandkids. They are your neighbors. They are your friends. They are your coworkers. Those are the ones, those are the lost kids on the beach that we're going to save. I want to challenge you to pray about it. I want to challenge you to take a daring step of faith with us over the next few weeks. Let's pray. We're going to have communion. Lord, I, I talk to, you know I talk to people all the time who don't necessarily have communion every week, and I just, I get it. Everybody does their own thing, but I am so committed to what we're getting ready to do right now because it reminds me, no matter what we're talking about, no matter what we're doing, it reminds me that I am a sinner and I am saved by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that I need that, no matter how many good things I did this week, I need that because you've got to cover all my sins for me to be with a holy God someday. And Lord, it also reminds me that there are literally millions of people out there who don't have that hope so that everything that we do is about what happens during this moment. Everything that we do is about eternity. And for some of us, it may mean sacrifice. I hope for all of us, it means sacrifice. When we decide to take a daring step of faith and commit more money than we thought we could do or we thought we were going to do over the next two years so that we can plant churches in the Dominican Republic and in Brazil and, and we can do work in Malawi with the people that are in the third poorest country in Africa and that we can plant this campus in New Lenox where I know hundreds of kids are going to be saved, thousands of kids are going to be saved and it's going to be theirs. When I take communion right now, they are the ones I'm thinking about. And I'm also going to be grateful for those churches that are faithfully giving and faithfully doing the things that they do so that my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids will be able to have Jesus in their life someday. And Lord, I pray that as we leap out in daring faith again, that others around us will notice and notice that the battle is the Lord's, that you are greater than our fears, and they will follow. And Lord, for right now, for those of us who believe in you, we take a moment and we remember your body and your blood. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.